Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald, and welcome to another edition of Continuum, the IBC podcast. Today, our guest is Kevin McShane. Kevin, welcome. How are you? Hi, John. Welcome. Uh, thank you. And it's a, a total honor to, to be here and have this conversation with you. You've had some terrific guests in, in the past, and I'm very, very honored to have this conversation with you here this afternoon. I'm looking forward to this. And, and for our listeners, Kevin and I have uh, had a conversation prior to this, and he has had me laughing, and I, I think you're really going to enjoy um, the, the next, however long it is, if it's 30 minutes, if it's an hour, whatever it happens to be. But I mean, so Kevin, like right out of the box, tell us about like where you grew up and, you know, I can see right behind you, you've got a Notre Dame banner, you went to Notre Dame, how Notre Dame came in play for you. For sure. Yeah. Thank, thanks, John. So maybe just start out. Uh, I'm from born and raised uh, a town that you're I think pretty familiar with a, a town uh, about an hour out southwest outside of Chicago by the name of Joliet. Very classic Irish Catholic family. I was actually one of 20 cousins, and we all lived on the same block um, in the parishes, St. Pat's Parish. Shout out to uh, the Irish there. And uh, my parents, my aunts and uncles, all greatest generation. Uh, most, you know, my dad served in the Navy during the war and my uncles had all served. Uh, and so my, my parents and my aunts and uncles were all greatest generation. So on one end of the block, I had grandparents on my mother's side. And then on the other end of the block, I had grandparents from my dad's side. And it was just this wonderful, wonderful growing up experience. Uh, now, being the youngest of one of 20 cousins, uh, you kind of learned some great lessons growing up, uh, getting pushed around and kicked around a little bit by your older cousins. <laughs> so you grew up in this, you know, in a very, you know, I remember great neighborhood. Um, went to Joliet Catholic for those out there. So nice shout out to Joliet Catholic, which is now Joliet Catholic Academy. Um, and then where did Notre Dame come into play? Yeah, great, great question. So growing up in a classic Irish Catholic family, uh, working class neighborhood. So, John, I remember my dad and I sitting down on Saturdays, some of the great, you know, memories I cherish, him and I just watching Notre Dame games. And I, coming into our conversation today, I was thinking about what was my first interaction, first game that I watched I wish I could tell you, John, I remember the Joe Montana, the cotton ball, the chicken soup at halftime. I don't. <laughs> I don't remember that one. Uh, however, I do remember when we we when Notre Dame played Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. I think it was 1980, maybe 1981. It was the Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker. team, I believe. Yeah. yeah, and I do remember watching that game. Um, and I just loved, you know – Growing up in an Irish Catholic working class neighborhood, I just like I just loved. I've started to fall in love with Notre, what Notre Dame stood for, Catholic school. Uh, I started to learn about you know Father Hesburgh and Father Joyce's you know, commitment to standard of excellence across academics as well as athletics. Um, you know that kind of meshed in well again with kind of our philosophy at Joliet Catholic High School. 
So I really started to really kind of fall in love with Notre Dame during my, my high school years. And my dad and I, we, we never had tickets, honestly. Uh, he would just jump in, would jump in his, his truck and him and I would, would go over to the game and, you know, the first quarter would try to figure out how to get tickets. Somebody would, didn't want to go to the game and all of a sudden would be up in the top row. And those are some great, great uh, memories that I have because my dad loved Notre Dame. And then uh, senior year in high school, all of a sudden it became an, uh, an opportunity. And I consider myself one in a million. And it was very, very lucky uh, to have the opportunity to go to Notre Dame. And, and Kevin, you're, you're tremendously humble because when you were at Notre Dame, you also played football. And I, I certainly, I mean, the, our direction we're going to go is to talk more about career and leadership and things like that. But the football aspect, how has that impacted overall from a, a school perspective and then bigger picture, your career? Yeah, great. That's yeah. Thank you, John. It's a great question. So first, a little context, maybe for your audience, if I may. So I've been told I was the very first recruit to commit to Lou Holtz uh, when he came from the University of Minnesota to Notre Dame. And just for background or context, the previous five years, the team underperformed and did not meet the high standards that Notre Dame set. Uh, and the coach, the previous coach, really had lost the team. The University of Miami just decimated Notre Dame uh, 58 to 7 in the last game, regular season game of 1985. So, John, you probably remember the narrative at the time was due to Notre Dame's uh, high academic standards. Notre Dame would never again be a top tier football program. Right. Enter Lou Holtz. So, I know we're going to dive into leadership and culture and all that. Great topic, and I'm excited about that, but just a sneak peek. So the best way to describe Coach Holtz's first days and weeks and months as the new football coach at Notre Dame would be <laughs> a tornado. It would be a 180-degree departure from the previous coach, the previous staff. Coach Holtz, the way I would describe him is he is a perfectionist perfectionist. He obsessed on discipline. He was an, uh, obsessed on fundamentals, he, uh, and he really was building an entirely new culture from the ground up, from scratch. And I remember, John, you know, he really challenged everyone. If he wanted to be, because that, that first season, it was my freshman year, 1986, uh, it's a turnaround, what we call today a turnaround. And he really, I remember him very vividly challenging every person on the team and as part of the program, check your ego. To be a member of this team, you're going to need to check your ego and put the mission of the team first and above all else. And if we do that, nothing is impossible. So our first year, we went five and six. Uh, not a great uh, win-loss record. However, there was something brewing on that team because the new culture was being established. And we ended the year out in the, the Coliseum beating, coming back and beating the University of Southern California. We all felt like we started to turn the corner when we beat USC out there. The next year, we finished eight and four. And then my junior year, we achieved a 12 and 0 and won the national 1988 national championship. And then during my junior and senior years combined, 
the team went 24 and one, which was, I've been told, the best two year run since 1950. So, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but what an, for an 18, 19, 20 year old kid, what an incredible experience to see what great leadership is all about coming in, taking an underperforming team or organization or program, conducting a massive turnaround in a very short period of time in achieving kind of the highest goals and objectives. Um, so it's, it was a remarkable lesson at a very early age, and it really has served me very well uh, as the foundation of, of my career. And it's this whole idea of don't tell me something's impossible. When, you know, the biggest takeaway, John, is when we do check our ego and we put the, the mission of the team, for, we put the team first and foremost, anything is possible. And that really has become the foundation uh, of my career. And I know we're going to talk more about that as we go along. Well, so, Kevin, you just mentioned career. So 1990, you're finished at Notre Dame. What did what did you want to do, and then what did you actually do? And we're going to get into more current, but like, what was that first position you started with coming out of school? Yeah, so I love you know through my you know grade school and high school, and then being part of this very special uh, team at, at Notre Dame. I loved being a member of a team. Uh, I love being part of the high a high performing team. Frankly, John, I love the competitive nature of team sports. Some days you win, some days you don't. Some days you get knocked down. Uh, you know, my experience uh, on the team at Notre Dame, I was nowhere near a, a first-string player. I had to grind and fight, scratch and claw on, on what we would call Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, kind of the heavy competitive days, just to squeak out a little playing time, maybe on special teams on Saturday. Or maybe to get my name on the uh, on the travel list, but I love the competitive nature. I love being part of a team. I love the idea is it, it doesn't have to be football. It could be basketball, uh, volleyball, swimming, regardless of sport. But if you're on a team, it, you have to face down adversity. You have to uh, understand grit and hard work, and that's what I really loved throughout my kind of school uh, years. And that team sport is what we call business. So I started the in the ultimate team sport, uh, which was sales. So my very first job out of out of college was the EJ Gallo Winery, and I was literally up and down here on the south side of Chicago selling wine. Did that for a couple of years, and then I joined American Express. And I was I just remember it clearly, John. I was one of twelve salespeople here in the Midwest. And because uh, I was the new guy on the team, like, you know, I had the worst territory, <laughs> Northwest Indiana. And, you know, it was kind of the, the rust belt at the time. And I was knocking on doors, cold calling into kind of older kind of steel mills and steel companies and industrial manufacturing that had seen better times. But it taught me a great lesson uh, that hard work, being collaborative, being part of the team. Uh, and I was, I loved it. Uh, I was just kind of cutting my teeth in sales. And at the time, I remember my manager's manager said, Kevin makes lemonade out of a lemon. And because I did a pretty good job in that first or second year, I got promoted to better territory. 
And that really was was really the foundation, forming, work hard, be a great contributor to the team, be coachable, you know, all those attributes that are super important. I was learning those lessons early on, and I really got hooked in kind of the, the, what we'd call the tech space uh, and never really looked back from there. So you're out for a few years and you make a decision that you want to go back to school and you went back and you earned your MBA. And if you could just share, Kevin, like what your thought process was and what prompted you to even consider that and then talk about the path of where you went. I'll, I'll let you share that. And kind of like that bigger picture, do you think that has earning your, earning your MBA has benefited you from a career perspective? Yeah, 1,000%, one, 1, John, for sure. So just to share a little bit of my journey. So uh, kind of my late 20s, uh, my career was kind of moving along kind of in the sales path. But I realized if I ever want to have the opportunity to move into, call it a, a, a vice president level position, or even down the road, have the opportunity for a C-level position, I really wanted to arm myself uh, with uh, a business degree and get my MBA. It's interesting because all the, you know, in my class, and I chose the Kellogg School of Management, and we had a class uh, of uh, 60 people, and we were all kind of about the same age, you know, um, um, late 20s. We all had the same titles, directors, VPs, for the most part. But we all were there for the same reason. Um, everybody had this great curiosity. Everybody enjoyed learning. And we all wanted to be in a position down the road because I wanted to be able to sit in front of a, a chief financial officer and really, for myself, understand the financials uh, as an example. So it's this idea of having, um, you know, learning across all of the functional areas uh, of a company. And that's really what the MBA is all about, is um, giving you a wider lens to how great companies um, are, are running uh, productively and successfully. Now, the other part of the MBA that I would just pass along is the learning is incredible, but the network is even better. You know, my class, my culture inside, you know, our class, we're all there for each other. Um, it's a grind. Um, I had two kids during my two years, which uh, Northwestern did not recommend. Um, but, you know, we, my wife and I uh, were going for it. It's I still, when I look back, I can't believe it. We were successful, but I absolutely loved it. And to this day, the networking is probably the best part of getting an MBA, because if I ever had a question, if I needed some help, if I'm struggling with something, you know, I have 60 people from my class that, you know, consider dear friends, pick up the phone. And it's time and time and time again in my life and in my career. You know, my classmates have been there for me and hopefully I've been there, you know, for them. So that regardless if it's not Kellogg at Northwestern, there's some great schools out there, business schools. But I would highly recommend to any person that's really committed to continuing to learn, continuing to improve themselves, who really have goals and career aspirations to consider getting an MBA 
at the right point in your life and in your career and do it, do it, do it sooner rather than later. So Kevin, you just mentioned family and, and you, met, you had two children when you were at Northwestern getting your master's. Um, so I want to take a little tangent off of here. And because this is a great story that I'd love you to share. So two, three of your children have gone to Fordham in New York, which is a, a great Jesuit university. And when I learned that from you, I asked, you know, why Fordham? And I, I'd love you to share that because I think it's a, a remarkable story um, and how the tie-in with Fordham is for you. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, John. I, uh, um, so Fordham, actually, my family uh, from Joliet on my mother's side, my oldest cousin was a senior back in 1959, uh, 1960. He was graduating from Joliet Catholic and didn't know uh, where he wanted to go to school. And the Carmelites of Joliet Catholic suggested the Jesuits uh, out at, at Fordham in New York City. My grandmother and my aunt went out and visited. Uh, and so when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, my, uh, you know, was my cousin, his name, Dave Langdon, was legend in my family. He went to Fordham. My, my mom and dad were so very proud of him. Um, and and he, just a quick story, Fordham had shut down football during uh, the World War II era. And then his senior year, um, my cousin Dave and his roommate, Donald Ross, petitioned the Jesuits to restart football. They were not necessarily excited about it. They weren't going to make it a varsity sport. They weren't going to give money to the program, but they said, we'll look the other way. So 1964, my cousin Dave was the head football coach uh, and Donald Ross was his partner. He raised the money and they brought football back to Fordham. Quick little uh, caveat is my cousin Dave called up Gordy Gillespie and asked Gordy for the playbook. Gordy sent it out. And so that first game in 1964, Davis, the head coach, they played NYU, Fordham University, <laughs> ran Gordy Gillespie's offense and defense, and Fordham won 20 to 14. So that was really legend growing up uh, in Joliet. My cousin restarted football. He went to Fordham. Now, when my kids were going through the process, um, they all wanted to major in, in, in finance. And the finance capital of the world is New York City. And Fordham has a very, very, it's the Gabelli School. It's a very strong um, business school and their finance. So the ability to get internships, you know, in your sophomore, junior year, because the proximity to Wall Street is really good. And that's why I think Fordham is, uh, for the right kid, is a great school if you want to go into business or even in finance. But And I think that's great. So thank you very much. I know it was a little bit of a tangent. Um, I want to go back, Kevin, and talk a little bit about your career. And, and you mentioned, you know, you've been primarily in that in the tech space most recently. And to me, you, you've kind of been, the, been in the private equity venture capital area as well. And was that by design? Did you actively look for something there? And, you know, for our listeners, kind of share the good and the bad. And, and that's specific a specific job, but like bigger picture, um, being in that space, the positive negatives that you've seen so far in your career? Yeah. That's, yeah. Thanks, John. So um, the answer is no, it was not by design. So throughout my career, I was gaining more and more leadership opportunities and responsibilities. And then I became uh, a chief sales officer uh, for a technology company that was owned and 
uh, buy a private equity company. We made an, uh, an exit, a successful exit of that company. And then I was given the opportunity to become a chief revenue officer of a much larger, about a $50 million tech company that was private equity backed. Two years later, we had uh, an enormous, uh, very successful exit to a larger strategic private equity firm. So all of a sudden, I had a track record, uh, if you will, of really of leading and, and scaling teams and organizations that, uh, of private equity-backed companies. So one of the managing partners, managing directors of the private equity firm that I worked with um, was moving to a different private equity firm in Wall Street. And he said, hey, Kevin, would you, would you mind? Uh, I'd love to have you join me as the operating partner and help kind of build out the tech practice. I love private equity. Um, and just to make it very simple, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, John, you probably remember this, that if you were um, a founder of a company, uh, if you were an entrepreneur and you were trying to get some capital, you have to go to your like local bank or go downtown Chicago. And, and you know, banks were pretty conservative. They were, you'd have to go through a lot of red tape and essentially they want to lend out uh, capital and it made it like jumping over the moon. And that was a great opportunity for these bankers that were a little more aggressive and they came and they really created the private equity market in the 1980s. And private equities, we're, what we're for is helping founders, helping companies, giving them the capital and the support that they need to be successful. At the end of the day, yep, there's a lot of valuation and uh, financial rigor that uh, our analysts look at to really understand the long-term projections of a company. But at the end of the day, it's a relationship business, you know, working with founders and working with leadership teams and giving them the capital and the support that they need to be successful. So bigger picture, how do you continually you know, improve, study, challenge yourself to get better? Yeah, great. Another great question. I love it. Um, so, you know, what I've seen in my own career, top performers, and whether it's an individual contributor, salesperson, maybe a marketer, a finance person, or a VP persona, or even our CEOs, the top performers are always challenging themselves to be better. Um, I would highly, highly recommend you know anybody to uh, to really get out of your comfort zone, take on a, a new challenge. Um, you know, Coach Holtz used to say, "Either you're living or you're dying," and you know that kind of resonated with me. Is you know get out of your comfort zone, challenge yourself. Those are the things that you have to do if you are kind of a goal-oriented person. Um, you know, for me, getting out of my comfort zone was applying to business schools, uh, kind of a scary proposition when I was 28 years old and, you know, I had a bunch of little kids uh, in the house. But I think that's the big idea. When you think about all of the most successful people that you know, um, they challenge themselves. Um, you know, Coach Holtz used to say, show me a successful person and I'll show you somebody who has conquered adversity. You know, uh, adversity, setback, failure. The, the great leaders, great, very successful people are the ones that get out of their comfort zone, 
And then, John, when you get knocked down, and heavenly knows I've been knocked down in my own career and my own life, uh, you just got to pick yourself up uh, because it's one of the great quotes from, I think it's Winston Churchill, success is not permanent and failure is not fatal. So when you get kicked down, you know, you're on the mat, get dust yourself off, get back up, you know, get learn what went wrong and then get back into the fight, so to speak, and go on and do the next uh, greatest thing. Kevin, if you had the chance to talk to you as an incoming college freshman today, knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself? Yeah, uh, find your why. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've come across, um, I Kurt, the Simon Sinek book, um, Start With Why. And I believe it's, this, you know, in my opinion, it's this whole idea of what's important to you. It's what's your why, you know, what's your ethos. So think of it as your vision and mission statement. And I highly encourage people, if you haven't read the book, it's called uh, the author Simon Sinek, Start With The Why, but really know what your why is. So meaning in hard times, when you're facing down adversity, uh, maybe you're in a tough job, things aren't going great, you can always go back to your why. Um, your Call it your vision and mission statement. Um, what I would tell uh, an 18-year-old eight, an Kevin McShane, right out of Joliet, uh, as a freshman at Notre Dame, you know, thinking about career, you know, work, working hard for something that you don't care about is called stress. And working for something that you love is called passion. Find your passion. And, you know, I'm a dad. Um, you know, I have four kids. And, you know, that's the, that's the advice my wife and I give our kids is, you know, what I've, my passion is going to be different than yours. You know, find what you're passionate about. And you won't work a day in your life. Excellent. So last season, towards the end of last season for Continuum, I had the opportunity um, to have Tom Mendoza on as a guest. And it, it was, for me, it was great. Tom was wonderful, just a, a, a great person, let alone all the great things he's done in life, but just a really great person. But he shared his insights on the importance of culture. And I'd love to get your perspective on the importance of culture and business and kind of two different facets of it, you know, how it can impact business in a positive way and whether you've experienced it firsthand or read, seen the negative impact of a poor culture on business. Yeah, John, I actually, um, Tom is one of my my heroes. Uh, he's an incredible leader, incredible person. Uh, I listened to the podcast and I was just hanging out every word that Tom was talking about. And, you know, throughout my own career, uh, I've been a member of organizations that had good culture and I've been a member of organizations that didn't have good culture. Bad culture is cancer inside a team or an organization. And that's why great leaders like Tom spend so much time talking about culture, because it is the difference between winning and losing. So as my career was progressing, and I'll be very candid, very, very open about this, John, because I do think it's the culture topic is so important. I was being put into bigger and bigger leadership responsibilities and positions. 
However, I was a long way, and this isn't false uh, uh, humility. I was a long way away from being anywhere near a good leader. I was making some very classic career missteps. My teams weren't as successful, and I was really searching for a better way. And I had I came across some career adversity. Um, you know, I had lost a job. Uh, I lost my position as the team leader. Um, and it's, it's a big kick in the gut. I was down on the mat. Um, I did come across uh, at, at about this time in my career, a book that really made a huge uh, impact on me. Uh, and it was written by two former U.S. Navy SEALs. And the name of the book is Extreme Ownership. Highly recommend it to anybody who is interested. And it did make a huge impact. I mean, it did, I think, change the, the trajectory of my career. So what I learned is I did have a bad habit as a leader of subtly pointing a finger and maybe placing blame elsewhere. You know, maybe it was, you know, pointing a, if we, the team didn't hit the target or the quota or, or the, the objective, you know, maybe I was kind of whispering it's, well, boy, if we had more marketing. And if our marketing team was doing a better job, or maybe if you know our CEO had you know got our product team to deliver the next version of the software, the product, you know, well, we would have we would have hit our target, what have you. And that kind of pointing of a finger, John, honestly, it was having a negative impact on the leadership of my team. I read the, the the book Extreme Ownership, and it really hit me in between the eyes. And after some soul searching, I continued to research and study the leadership defined by uh, our special forces and even Navy SEALs. And I started to implement a different approach to my leadership. And essentially it's this, it boils down to the leader owns everything, whether it's in your uh, responsibility or not, you own it. And you need to take full responsibility when there's a mistake, when there's a failure, because it really does set the tone for the rest of the team and the organizations. And what I found, John, was when I, when I was um, developing this idea of extreme ownership and holding myself more accountable, I got to see others on the team taking a little bit more ownership when they had a misfire or they had a failure. And when a leader is able to stand in front of his or her team and say, guys, the mistake that this happened or the misfire or the lost opportunity, I own it. It's on me. I am the one, the, the single person to blame. And now I'm going to propose a plan so it doesn't happen again or, you know, we're more successful next time. Then that starts to help people take ownership of what they're working on. We're not, we're no longer pointing fingers. And when that's when culture starts to really improve. And I got to thinking as a leader in the business world, if this is central to how special forces and Navy SEALs build great culture, wow, it's something really, really cool that we can pour into business and leverage it on the business side to build better teams, to build better leaders, and ultimately have great culture that leads to success. So Kevin, in that probably the last 30 seconds, I think you mentioned leaders or leadership a few times. And you've certainly seen and worked with some great leaders in your life. And, and if you could share with us, be it on the personal side, professional side, 
who any of those great leaders have been and why. So let me, John, if you don't mind, let me go back to Lou Holtz. And I want to share something that I think that's really, really cool. It's um, that it's really a profile of leadership. So um, we have team reunions uh, every, every year. It's actually a couple of times a year where uh, not just the 88 team, but all the teams that had played for Lou Holtz, we all get together a couple of times during the year. And there's something really cool that's going on at these reunions because, of course, you have the star players, the Tim Browns that won the Heisman, that went on to these uber successful NFL careers, and the Rocket Ishmaels and the Tony Rices, and, you know, and it's wonderful. But they're they were the star players, and they really come in to thank Lou Holtz for helping them to identify them as uh, a diamond in the rough and get them more playing time. And they became the star at Notre Dame and then they went an NFL career. So of course they're, they have gratitude to Lou Holtz, but there's something going on at these reunions that I think is way cooler because you have dozens and dozens and dozens of walk-on players, people, players that never even, maybe even played, never even got on the field. They're there in mass at these reunions. And you have dozens and dozens and dozens of student managers. These are the, the student managers that were part of the running the operation uh, of the team. They're there in mass. You got graduate assistants, you get medical staff. So you literally have hundreds and hundreds of people, walk-ons, GAs, medical staff, support staff, the student managers. And they're all there saying to Coach Holtz how important he was in terms of developing their character, developing, um, and they are saying over and over again, it's because, Coach, you cared about me. I was just a walk-on. I was just a student manager. But you got to get to know me. You got to get to know my story, and you inspired me. So think about that, John. 20 years later, 30 years later, you literally have hundreds and hundreds of people that um, are coming back and saying, you cared about me, coach. You made a huge impact in my life. I'm a better husband. I'm a better dad. I'm a better business leader. I run a non-for-profit. I do community work because of your leadership. And I think that's why Lou Holtz, in my opinion, is one of the great transformational leaders is because every single person in on the team and in the organization matters, regardless of status or rank. And I think that's really, I think his should be his legacy. Um, and it's called uh, Holtz's Heroes. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people that are coming back and saying, Coach, you made a huge impact on me. Just real quick story to as an asterisk. 1986, he's on this, we're on the sidelines. We had three senior managers at uh, that year. And Brian was one of the three senior managers. And Brian's sitting, standing next to Coach Holtz at practice. And Lou says to Brian, what are you majoring in? And Brian says, uh, engineering. And Lou says, what are you, you going to do after when you graduate from Notre Dame? And Brian says, well, I'm an ROTC coach, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the U.S. Army. And Lou turned to him and said, Brian, everything I need to know about, everything I needed to know about leadership Everything I need to know about coaching, I learned in the U.S. Army. Today, Brian, Brian Fenton, heads up the United States Global Special Forces Organization. 
He was one of the three student managers in 1986. Brian, um, I consider him um, a, a dear friend. And he comes back and he says publicly that Lou Holtz was a big profile for him. It was the leadership profile that influenced Brian. Um, and he shares those Lou Holtz Notre Dame stories, you know, with his troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he kind of uses it kind of as a rallying cry. But there again is just one example of how a coach and, or a leader can have such an impact. And to me, that is the profile, that is the definition of great leadership, is impacting people across the organization in a very positive way. Well, those are great. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, Kevin, in your opinion, if there was one area that you believe people should put more emphasis on to solidify their career, what would it be? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. If there's one, you know, when I when we think about the um, the teams that I've been a member of across the, the the portfolio within our private equity team, so we're always doing, we're always kind of looking at this analysis of what makes top performers across roles, and even all the way up to the CEO role. And our top CEOs, our top VPs, are the top performers. The biggest characteristic is coachability. Believe it or not, the biggest, the most important characteristic or attribute of our top performers are people that are open to coaching, coachability. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we try when working with the teams, ego will bury you in a dark, dark, deep grave. One of the things that, you know, I try to do day in and day out this is a solo prayer to myself in the morning, Kevin, check your ego. Because when we do check our ego and we put the mission of the team first and foremost, now we're moving in the right direction. And then being open to coaching, regardless of position, John, whether you're an analyst um, or you're a salesperson or you're in marketing or finance or you're the CFO or the CEO of a private equity-backed company, the top performers are the ones that can check their ego every day, take ownership, take responsibility when something goes wrong. Don't place, don't point a finger of blame, take ownership and be open to coaching. Those are the characteristics that, re that resemble the top performers. Kevin, based on that, though, do you think people that can be learned and, or do people actually, I mean, do they have to be willing to accept that that ownership aspect, um, like you said, the, the book, Extreme Ownership. I mean, is that something that people can learn or is that you either have it or you don't? Yeah, I, 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 it's absolutely 100% learnable <laughs> if that's 100%, John. Okay. And, and 100%. It's, it's, you know, I learned it because, you know, in my career, at that point in my career, going back, you know, 10, 10 to 12 years, I was kind of getting derailed. I, the, my career wasn't going exactly where, and because I was pointing fingers of blame and I came across this great book and I did a lot of research of what are some of the reasons that make up special, why are they such great organizations and teams? 
And I really embraced it. I definitely think it's something, if somebody's open to learning, if somebody wants to get better, they want to be a better team performer, maybe they're aspiring to, to a, a, a different position, getting into, getting promoted. Uh, it's absolutely part of the process, being coachable, don't point a finger, take ownership. That is, these are the characteristics that time and time again are the most important of great leaders. Kevin, you've talked a lot about business and I, I want to transition a little bit and talk about really why we're here, the IBC, International Business Council, which is the Alumni Association of the Student International Business Council. So the SIBC was founded actually when you were at Notre Dame in like 1989 was the first year. And you know, over time, really over about 20 years, it, it grew. And to the point now, Notre Dame is the largest student organization on campus for undergrads, about 3,000 members. The person, Frank Potenziani, who endowed the money to start the SIBC as well as the IBC, also opened two other chapters, endowed two other chapters, University of San Diego and Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Mm -hmm. And the SIBC mission is very similar to the IBC mission. And this goes back to this business aspect. And I'd love to get your feeling, your thoughts on our mission. And it, it's to create a world where the business community acts as a principled force for the common good globally. And I just wondered, again, if you could kind of share what your thoughts are of that. Yeah, I absolutely love love the mission. And and that's we you know, when I was leaving Notre Dame, I remember Coach Holtz, you know, with the senior, the senior football class, is, you know, I remember him saying, you know, to whom much has been given, much is expected. Y'all have, have this incredible opportunity. You have all been part of Notre Dame football. You're all gonna graduate uh as uh, degrees with the University of Notre Dame. And for me, it was an incredible once in a lifetime experience, but it was to give back. And, you know, when we do these reunions, you know, Coach Holtz is, is you know, are you giving back? Um, you know, it's this idea of 40 for 40, right? Give, give Notre Dame the four years, but then in the next 40, you know, 40 years, we want to be giving back to the university. And I think that's exactly um, you know, I love about the mission. There's this little prayer that my family and I, uh, we like to say in the morning, and I'd love to share it with you. The root of joy is gratefulness. It's not joy that makes us grateful. It's gratitude that makes us joyful. And I think it's that gratitude, you know, it's really, it's very capital, but it's very our foundational side of our belief is having that gratitude brings, brings joy into our life. What gratitude means for me is being gratitude of all the opportunities of the, the, the teachers, the coaches, um, my mentors, and, you know, being able to give back, John, and, you know, especially this is a great organization to do that, but being able to give back to maybe people who are a little bit younger in their career through networking and being a mentor, I think that's what's important to me. And that's what's important to, I know, to a lot of other people um, that were part of the, the football program at Notre Dame when I was there. But, and even, Kevin, today, I'm going to fast forward to actually today. I mean, you're really involved in your community as well as your parish at home. And can you just talk about the importance of that to you individually 
of giving back. Um, why do you do it? Why does your family do it? Right. It's, and it's because, you know, giving back because you're grateful of the all of the opportunities that, that were given to me, you know, growing up. Um, so I'm very active in my 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 uh, church, my parish here in the South Side of Christ the King in, in Chicago. Uh, I give back to uh, the University of Notre Dame, very active with uh, the Jesuit community out in New York uh, at Fordham University. Uh, and it's really, there's nothing better than we can do as parents and as adults, but really invest in and support these programs and, and institutions, in my case, my parish, my church, these schools, to give back and help these organizations be successful. So they're there for the next generation. And that's, I appreciate that. And that's, it's great because you, you certainly, that was kind of an off the cuff question I asked. That was really no, I didn't give you any advance notice on that. Um, couple last questions. What are you most proud of in your life so far? And I want you to separate it on the personal side as well as the, pro- the professional side. Well, my, that's easy, John. Um, my wife and I are very, very blessed and have uh, gratitude for the family that we have. Uh, we're blessed with four children, three boys, uh, one girl, and it's um, just a wonderful blessing. Uh, you know, I, I'm going back to my my days growing up in Joliet. Uh, you know, family is you know faith and family are the most important part of your life. You got to get that right. Coach Holtz used to talk about that. Um, over and over again about being a great husband, being a great dad. He was a great role model, of course. On the business side, you know, what I'd say um, to me, one of the things that uh, I cherish um, is the ability to help bring an influence and help bring people along in their own career. Getting people in the right career trajectory, that's an honor. That's a blessing that I cherish very, very deeply because of all of the opportunities that I've been given. And so now I'm in a position uh, in my career to kind of help people get them on the right career trajectory. Um, you know, I've played for Lou Holtz and a lot of the the, win, the wins, the losses, the lessons that I learned playing for Coach Holtz, um, I'm able to kind of give back to people I work with uh, across many teams and, and portfolios. And then all of the lessons that I've learned where I came up short, I got off track, I made mistakes. And I think being vulnerable is a good thing. And sharing with people like, hey, when I was running this team as the VP of sales or the the chief revenue officer, I made this big mistake um, and really cost us. So let's, let's talk about, and here's the lesson I learned. And using, you know, talking about, because, you know, I think it was Nick Saban that said this. You don't learn a darn thing when you're winning. But you do learn when you come up short and you lose. And I think the great leaders really go back. When you get off track, you you have some adversity in your life. You had some uh, career adversity or life adversity. What did you learn from it? And how can you be better? And I think... You know, it gets back to that success is not permanent and failure is not fatal. So when something goes wrong, when you get knocked down, you're facing adversity. You know, Lou Holtz used to say, um, you know, it's this old phrase of show me somebody who's successful and I'll show you somebody 
who's overcome adversity. And I think it's, it was such a great lesson. And it, it's really kind of a reminder every day that you're going to have adversity in life. You're going to have career adversity. You're going to, uh, you might lose your job at, at some point. You're going to get knocked down on the canvas. No pity party. Dust yourself off. Think about what you got to do better. And then, you know, like my mom used to say, and it's such a, it's, it's not a cliche. Um, it's really the truth. You know, when one door closes, another door is going to open. And that's really kind of been the story of my life. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the coaches and the teachers and the mentors, people that kind of took me under their wing. And now what I'm trying to do um, back to the mission is really give back and be part of the solution and help kind of this next generation uh, of leaders. That's tremendous. Thank you. And, and Kevin, here's my last question. So back, your little kid running around the neighborhood with all your cousins going to fourth grade at St. Pat's. What did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> right. I wanted to be, honestly, I wanted to be like my dad. Um, he was a city fireman. Uh, it, uh, we called it Station 6 right on, on Campbell, right over the, the yep. uh, Jefferson on the St. Ray's side. I wanted to be like my dad, um, and I couldn't be. Uh, I remember in the neighborhood, he was the driver um, of the of the fire truck, the hook and ladder, and then the, the pumper engine. And as a little kid, seeing my dad drive the fire engine going to, you know, going into facing the fire, going into the problem, going to help other people does not get any, any better than that. And I just hope in my own career, um, in my own life, that it would be proud of, of what we've my wife and I have accomplished with our family. I, I think your dad would be very proud and your mom. Kevin, thank you. I tremendously appreciate your time today, and I wish you and your entire family the greatest successes moving forward. Thanks, John. It, it's been an honor to have this conversation uh, with you. Um, I love what you and your team are, are doing, so thank you on behalf of Notre Dame and this, this community. And uh, keep up the great work, John. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Continuum. Please leave us a five-star rating and share Continuum with your colleagues and friends. We need your help in gaining new listeners and growing our following. And for more information on the IBC, visit our website, ribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C.com. Have a great day.